0: Good morning, Uh, Beth and I will be reading Psalm 34. You can also find this in your pew Bible on page 396. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing.
1: Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems his servants. No one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord.
2: You may have noticed in recent weeks the piece of pottery that is just uh, back there in the foyer. uh, It's a broken piece of pottery. And each week uh, during Lent, one piece will be added back to uh, that vessel until it is made whole. And we hope that that will be a nice visual reminder to each of us, week by week, that this season of Lent uh, really is a season in which uh, the mission of Christ, that He came to pour Himself out, uh, to yield and surrender Himself completely to the Father's will, accomplished something pretty incredible. And that was that it, it makes us whole. It puts us together together. And so that which is broken becomes made new and there's beauty from ashes and all those wonderful kinds of images. So we hope each week you'll take notice and I think there's a corresponding verse that's out there in front of that that will be taken from each week's uh, text. Uh, The context of Psalm 34, uh, this is uh, a psalm that David has written. Uh, It was written uh, around the time that he was... He pretended to be insane to escape from King Abimelech. And if you don't have to read too many psalms before you realize that David was was like us in a lot of ways. Uh, he was a person who felt exuberance at times, but he also felt despair and he felt fear and he felt all the kinds of things that you and I fear. And this psalm has much to say, um, about fear, but taken as a whole the entire twenty two verses, I want to show you a slide that speaks to the relationship between this text, which is on the right hand column, and the Beatitudes, Jesus teaching in the Gospel of Matthew chapter five uh, and you 'll see some parallels. there are actually two slides that go along with this, but uh, it 's really interesting to kind of put, put them up beside each other and and see. Uh, that Psalm 34 is basically an Old Testament prototype in many ways of the Beatitudes. Uh, This poor man called, and the Lord heard him and saved him. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, saves those crushed in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Those who fear God like nothing. uh, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And then the second Second slide, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Blessed are the pure. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of their righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Evil will slay the wicked. Uh, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So you see a strong correlation between this psalm and Jesus' teaching uh, of the Beatitudes. It's a psalm that addresses fear. Uh, and so we are, it's a prayer of seeking. Uh, that's the, 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 the topic for today, the theme, a prayer of seeking. And that comes primarily from verse four I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. And fear is something that we all experience. Uh, From the time that we were children, you could probably recall stories when you were afraid as a child, Uh, perhaps rightly so, perhaps something silly, like there was a monster under your bed or something like that. Um, I want to show you a slide of uh, the top 10 phobias, and some of these you will um, recognize and, and, and notice. Arachnophobia, I have to wonder if that gets all the way up to number one just because there was a movie that kind of drew a lot of attention to that. Fear, but maybe not. Fear of snakes. If I identify with anything on this list, uh, I I always say that I I hate snakes, and maybe that comes from a fear of snakes. I don't know, but a phidiaphobia, a fear of snakes, and you see uh, fear of heights is is popular as well, Uh, and all these different things um, that we're afraid of. So I don't know exactly who voted or or how many, uh, how that list was determined. But there are some other phobias that were on the top 100 list that I found a little more interesting than some of these, to be honest with you. Uh, Okay, bear with me. This one's a little lengthy. It's a hippopotamonstrosis equipophedia phobia, which is the fear of long words. So somebody has a sick sense of humor in naming that. There's theophobia, which is the fear of God, very unfortunate. Phobia of phobia, the fear of fear, phylophobia, the fear of love, panophobia, the fear of everything. And now this one, if I had been aware of this when I was a, an elementary school student, if you're in here and you're in elementary school or uh, still in middle school, high school, maybe put your hands over your ears because there's a legitimate numerophobia, a fear of numbers. So if I had known that that, that was diagnosable, I would have pursued that uh, doctor's note for sure. But there's also didaskalinophobia, the fear of school altogether. And then for us grown-ups, there's ergophobia, uh, the fear of work. So you may have some coworkers that you think may suffer from... Who has that? You've got that back there? The fear of work. There you go. Well, there are lots of doctors in the room. Maybe we can get you some help uh, for that. Fears are everywhere, right? Any animal, anything, any situation, any place... There there can be a fear of it, uh, rational or irrational, uh, but we all understand that fear is a very commonplace emotion that we have. Sadi was a 13th century Iranian poet who said this, I fear God, and next to God, I mostly fear them that fear him not. Now, as for a quote by an American Uh, Probably the most well-known fear quote, 1933, the presidential inauguration, FDR, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Uh, The Bible says plenty about fear. In fact, the Proverbs say numerous places that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom. Uh, if you've been here on Wednesday night, this past Wednesday night, there was a study on, on Psalm 34, and I want to show a slide that shows the distinction between fears. If, if you read Psalm 34, you see the, the English word fear several times, but um, you, you don't see that in the Hebrew, there are actually two separate words for fear that are, that are going on here. Megorah is a destructive kind of fear. That's what the, the leader uh, labeled that kind of fear Wednesday night. Uh, in that study. Verse 4, I sought the Lord, and He heard me and delivered me from all my fears. So these are all the things uh, in our lives that, um, that we're afraid of, whether it be uh, what others think or uh, financial worries or just any kind of fears that, that can really harm us. The more we dwell on it, it actually doesn't accomplish anything. It, it, it can harm us. So um, that, that particular variation of the Hebrew word shows up in the Old Testament only three times. Now, Uriah is a redemptive fear. This is, this is what the psalmist means when he says uh, in verse 9, O oh, fear the Lord, ye his saints, for there is no want to them that fear him. So we're not talking about the same kind of fear that's at the top. We're not talking about a fear of God that uh, he's going to uh, crush us, or he's just—he's evil. He's out to get us, or something like that. It's a—it's a fear that we could translate that word into revere, honor, respect, uh, to be in awe of God. He is an awesome God, uh, and so we are to understand that we are not—we uh, are not better than God. We're not bigger than God. We are to have no gods before Him. Um, he is supposed to have that place in our lives of of. Uh, of what the psalmist calls a fear of the Lord, but it's not the same fear as the destructive fears. This variation of the Hebrew word occurs in the Old Testament over 300 times. And I really like that. I like that the psalmist used a very uh, little used word to talk about the things that really eat us up and bother us, and he used a very commonplace word to talk about how we're supposed to relate to God. A hundred times more often does the Old Testament speak of, of... Yarah than megura so i think that's I think that's interesting to understand uh, as I was looking over psalm thirty four this week uh, and uh, most of the time I read a text and especially if it's long like this twenty two verses, um, there's lots and lots of, of of good sermons that you could preach out of psalm thirty four so we're not trying to to do that we can't cover all twenty two uh, verses necessarily, but there were a few things that really jumped out at me, and normally that's kind of what leads me in a direction. I feel like the, the Spirit kind of says, oh, that's good, you know, or uh, bring something to the forefront. Uh, so th- these are a couple of places that I really thought that, that we would spend some time this morning. However, we're not going to spend much time at all, uh, and that's uh, Charles Spurgeon's fault, and I'll explain that in a few minutes. Uh, but the first one that jumped out at me was Verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. If if you've never heard of Psalm 34 at all, you've probably heard of that verse. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And numerous places in Scripture uh, talk about this idea of tasting the Lord and seeing that He is good. Hebrews 6.5, 1 Peter 2.3. I did want to note one thing that a commentary said that I thought was really good uh, on this verse. Uh, The writer wrote, the tasting should be more than a casual sampling. So we're not talking about being at a party and being offered some uh, hors d'oeuvre and just taking a tiny little bite just, you know, uh, just to see what it's like. We're talking about really getting in and experiencing God and just seeing, uh, is, is God good or is God evil? I mean, if you really dive in, Uh, to this ocean of of Christian spirituality, is it one that that harms you or is it one that begins to work things in your life that you realize are are good, things that are actually outside your control? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Uh, The other phrase that really jumped out at me that that, that we won't spend much time on, uh, but I do want to mention it, is, um, let's see, verse... Verse 5, those who look to God, those who look to Him are radiant. Some translations say radiant with joy. I mean, I love that. In a, in a psalm that's supposed to be about fear, destructive fears, reverent fear, we've got this picture of a face being radiant with joy. And, you know, if you've seen someone who is obviously scared, they can't, they, their face cannot also be radiant with joy. I mean, it's, it's kind of one or the other. Those things would be mutually. Exclusive. But I love that, that if we, if we look to God, then, our, then we are radiant. Never covered with shame, uh, radiant. Uh, and that, that kind of terminology shows up in Scripture in a couple of places that I'll allude to just very quickly. Um, Exodus thirty four twenty nine. Moses, after he had been in close contact with God on the mountain, he comes down It says his face, uh, that he was just radiant. Um, Isaiah 60 verse 5 uses that same word in talking about a mother's face lighting up at the sight of her children. Uh, And 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. So if that veil is taken off and we are in close proximity to the Father, then not only is He radiant, but we begin to reflect his, His radiance as well. I want us to kind of narrow in a little bit and look with me if you have your Bibles open. Verses 5 through about verse 16. We're going to kind of begin to narrow in on that passage. And I want to pay particular attention to this idea of the face. Listen to these words that have to do with the face. Verses 5 through 16. Not every verse, but many of them. Those who look. To him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. The poor man called, and the Lord heard. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Uh, Verse 12, uh, "...whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies." Verse 15, "...the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are attentive to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil." Just this over and over this idea of, of the face, the face of God. Uh, Psalm one oh five verse four says this seek the Lord and his strength, seek his face evermore. Psalm twenty seven eight uh, the Lord says, Seek ye my face. So in this prayer of, of seeking we, it, there's something significant here about the face of God. Uh, here's one uh, danger that I think we face, and that is that if we believe that we have kind of gotten to God, we are, we are near God, we are, we're, we're there, we've kind of arrived, then it becomes more of a challenge, I think, to continue to earnestly search for God. How, how diligently would you say that you are seeking after God? We think about the uh, parables where Jesus talked about seeking after something. It says if a woman loses a, a coin you know, at home, sweeps out everything, looks everywhere. You, you've experienced this, maybe not with a coin, but your keys or your phone or whatever. You, you begin to go through everything, pull the drawers out, pull everything out of the drawer. If it was hanging on the hook where it was supposed to by the door or in your coat pocket where it was supposed to, then you wouldn't have to search for it. You would have it. Uh, And Jesus tells a story about a a shepherd who has a hundred sheep. Ninety-nine of them are just fine, but one is missing. He doesn't just accept that reality because then the next day another one would go missing and the next day another one would go missing. Eventually, he'd have no sheep. He goes after the one sheep until he finds it. He searches diligently. For that. But what about this idea of continuing to search for this God who we believe actually the Holy Spirit resides in us? Why do I have to search? Why do I have to seek His face if I have Him, if I have such easy accessibility to worship and to teaching and just get on your phone and and find a sermon by anybody you want to hear from any time and it's right there? The scriptures are so accessible. To us? What, what about this search, searching and seeking after God? Well, what if we think about the way in which we experience addictions? What would an alcoholic or a drug addict or an addict of any kind do to taste their next fix? In any addiction, we, we find ourselves in it quite often and then spend much time outside of when we're actually in it figuring out how to get back into it? Do we so desperately want to taste the Lord again? Isaiah 12.3 says, With joy you will drink deeply from the fountain of salvation. With joy you will drink deeply from the fountain of salvation. Well, what if you don't? What if you don't drink deeply from the fountain of salvation? You know, if you're an athlete, or if you've been out on the beach on a really hot day, or you've been working in the yard on a really hot day, you don't need to wait until you realize that you're thirsty to start hydrating yourself, right? You need to know going into it that, well, hey, I'm going to play a sport, I'm going to do whatever, I'm on the beach, I'm going to have some water, I'm just going to drink, you know, through the day and stay hydrated. Could it be that there's a sense of spiritual dehydration that sets in if we're not tasting regularly and seeking after the face of God? Perhaps we don't drink in uh, as much because we're unaware of our critical thirst. I want to show you a slide that uh, dealing with verses 9 and 10. I want to focus in here on verses 9 and 10 for the remainder of the sermon. Verses 9 and 10 say kind of a similar thing that's repeated. It says, uh, fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him lack nothing. Okay, so fear God, lack nothing. Uh, And then the second half of verse 10 says, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Uh, And some translations may say, uh, trust the Lord there. So fearing God, trusting God, and then on the right-hand side, was lacking nothing. Now the question that, that, this, that I think the Spirit kind of stirred in me this week in preparing for this morning is, which of these two equations is, is accurate? The top one says if we fear God, if we trust God, if we have a reverence for God that's healthy, and we, and we search after Him, that leads to or results in our lacking Nothing. In other words, I I, I pursue God, I fear God, I see God as I ought to see Him, as holy and, and awesome, and then as a result of that, I get all I need and want. Or the bottom equation says that if we're right with God and we fear God, we trust God, we revere God, that equals lacking nothing, or to phrase it positively, fullness in life. I was studying for, for the sermon, and again, I had a couple of things that popped out at me, and I thought, okay, well we'll talk about that. Taste and see the Lord is good, that's good. Those who look to Him are radiant, that's good. I can camp out there and talk about that. But I couldn't get away from this. I couldn't get away from the idea that if we fear God, does it lead to or does it, does it lead to lacking nothing, or does it mean that there's fullness of life? We have everything we need in our right relationship with God. And it just really um, I was struggling with it. What well, it made me think of Romans eight thirty two, Romans eight thirty two, which we have up here. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? This is uh, a, a very well known verse, a very well known chapter of Scripture, uh, with this same kind of idea. Uh, if we're right with God, God has given us His own Son. Uh, And so if he would not withhold Christ from us, would he withhold anything from us? But still, I'm grappling with, but what does that mean? Does that mean that in Christ is everything? Or does that mean that I get Christ and then I get everything? So I began to to kind of research a little bit more on this verse, hoping that it would help me kind of better understand uh, verses 9 and 10. Eugene Peterson translated uh, verse 9 that we were looking at just a minute ago in the 34th Psalm, this way. He says, worship God if you want the best. Worship opens doors to all his goodness. I ended up with a, with a sermon preached by Charles Spurgeon. That's why I said it was his fault that I couldn't talk about the other verses. Uh, because when I read his sermon, um, I began to weep. And I don't, I don't, I mean, I tear up sometimes, but I don't, I don't just like weep unprovoked. But, but I, this, I was convicted by what Spurgeon had to say, 1862 uh, message that he delivered, and it talks about the value of Christ, the worth of Jesus. It's a long quote. I apologize for its its length, but. I just want to read it with you because there's no need in me trying to paraphrase Spurgeon when he says it a lot better himself. Thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift. Eternity alone can reveal the value of Christ. By the miseries of the hell from which He saves us, let us measure Him. By the bliss of the heaven to which He lifts us, let us estimate His worth. By the depths of ignominy and shame into which He dived, let us conceive of Him. By the glories he relinquished and by the agonies he bore, let us attempt to form some faint idea of his value. But this pearl of great price is so precious that I am bold to say that if heaven and earth and all the starry orbs could be sold, their united price could not buy such another pearl as this one which God has given to us in Christ Jesus. So, beloved, as God has already given you this priceless pearl, will he not also give you all else that you need? See then the wondrous treasure you possess if you are a believer in Jesus. God is yours. The perfect man is yours. Christ's life, His death, His blood, His righteousness, His intercession, His incarnation, His second advent are all yours and all else that you need. Do but ask boldly, receive gratefully, wait patiently, hope trustfully, and walk rejoicingly, for as God has given you His Son, shall He not with Him also freely give you all things? I was convicted uh, by Spurgeon's sermon here because it really challenged me in how big is Jesus in my life. I mean, he talks about Jesus in such a way that it's just it's it's pretty radical the value of Jesus. And if I were to open up my life and open up my free time to you or to a group of auditors to look at, if I were to open up my finances to you and open up my thought life to you and open up everything in my life before some folks to look at it, would they be able to discern that Jesus was my Lord and Savior, that He was really big in my life? I mean, they would say He's present. There's, there's this and there's this and there's that, but I don't know how big and grand it is. I don't know, how, I don't know that you're in awe of Him. I don't know that you revere Him. And it just really struck me, and I began to think about this idea of how big is Christ in my life? Is He grand to me, in my heart, in my affections? Is He really the most magnificent thing in my life? I think it's a temptation that maybe we step beyond sometimes, but when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, the very first one says, don't have any other gods before me. Now that's not to be, you know, like the number one commandment, but it was the first one that he gave. And then when Jesus was asked, what's, what's the most important of all the commandments and laws? He said, love the Lord your God with all all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors, not just a little bit, don't just put up with them, but love them like, you're, like you love yourself. Do to them what, what you would want them to do to you. And I began to try to process this and understand better how silly it might seem uh, the place that I give or don't give Christ in my life. And, and one of the images that came to mind was Imagine that you're in this grand concert hall, and there's just the world's best musicians are in there, and it's, it's a symphony, just an orchestra of just the, the elite, the best of the best, and just the fullness of the sound. I remember the first time we took our boys to hear the North Carolina Symphony. Uh, they didn't realize that a few minutes before they're just up there, you know, tuning the instruments and all this, and it's just kind of this garbled sound of just all this mess. And then all of a sudden, when it was time to start, they Boom, they all played one note, and all the kids just kind of sat up like, oh, wow, they're good. That actually sounds good. Well, imagine if you were hearing just the most splendid, full, amazing music you've ever heard in your life. And you walk out of the concert hall and go find the janitor's closet and get in there and, and obsess with a little child's keyboard that you can't quite hit the right note. That began to get at the sense that I was feeling that man, you're you're looking at at the wrong things. You're worried about what you can do and and how successful you are and what contributions you're making instead of the grandeur of the kingdom of God. And sometimes we just need to to take it in, to breathe it, to taste and see that God is good. Or we could think about a, a feast just wherever you've been where there's been the most amount of food you've ever seen. I mean, meats and breads and sides and desserts. I mean, I, I love to eat. I can just see all these things set out on a table. And imagine that you were invited to the table, and instead of coming to the table, you went into the, to the kitchen and began to look around on the floor for crumbs that had fallen. And I think sometimes that, that that's the way our... our our doubt must look to the Father when He invites us to come. Jim mentioned the Biltmore a few uh, weeks ago in one of his sermons, and Marissa and I went there when we, were, when we were dating. Just a magnificent structure, a huge home. And you could think about just this splendid estate and imagine that that was before you, and you were a guest, and you were invited in, and you were so worried about would there be space for you, and would it be okay, and you don't want to intrude and i don't know i don't want to be you know I don't want to put anybody out i don't want to and so you you begin to put together some limbs out in the woods to try to just create your own little shelter. I was reminded of of kind of the 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 lack of priority that I might give Christ. A few weeks ago when I went with Frank Page to to Nicaragua on a mission trip, and we hear this kind of language a lot. I didn't hear it a lot from the team, but I'm just saying this is the way that we feel when we go maybe to a third world country, and that is that we see this deep poverty, and yet we're somehow uh, amazed or mystified that the people are happy oh, they're just so poor. I mean, they don't have nice jobs, and they don't have college degrees, and they don't have nice cars, nice houses. They live in shacks, and they don't have tons of food. It's pretty bland. It's pretty basic. It's rice and beans and stuff like that. And yet they're happy. And I wonder if those people would say to us, we're happy because our Jesus is so big. He's just incredible. He's magnificent. He's everything to me. He's so faithful. He's so good. He carries me through. And in their hearts, that their material things is just a tiny little speck compared to the grandeur of God. And in most of our lives and in first world places, it's hard for your material things to be like a speck to you. It's just, it's very difficult. It's not impossible, but it's hard. I mean, we could take any little facet of our materialism and and immerse ourselves in it, it can engulf us. Food. It can engulf us. I don't know how much food I actually need to eat a day or how much I really need to think about it, but I do. I eat way too much, and I think about it way too much. And we can just immerse ourselves in it. I mean, I could take any little slice of the pie. Ryland's golf lessons at Oxmoor Valley. That can become a big thing to me. Colson's travel baseball, that can be as big as you want to let it be if your kids play travel sports. That can be all-consuming if, if you let it be. Your job, your spouse, any, any of this stuff can just become our lives. And then we wonder, where, where is Christ in, in that equation? Is He the largest, most important? Is He the, the biggest and the best to us or are we so inundated with i mean guys sports you know when i was a kid you had to wait for sports illustrated to come out but now we have the apps on our in our pocket you know endless news about the athletes and and what they said yesterday and how many points they scored and the stats i mean if you want to immerse yourself you can be totally consumed by any of it There's a story that G.K. Chesterton, great 20th century writer and thinker, who's one of his books instrumental in C.S. Lewis' Accepting Christ. There's a story of Chesterton. Uh, he took a day, he was outside, he was wandering around the hills, and he was uh, sketching. He had taken some brown paper, he had taken some colored uh, chalk, and he was just making little sketches and drawing as he was out. And he realized he had no white chalk. And it really upset him because he was he was he was drawing something he really wanted white chalk and he just his whole countenance changed and he was very frustrated and very angry that he had, that he had forgotten the white chalk and then he burst out in laughter because he realized that the the ground beneath him was porous limestone the earth's equivalent of white chalk. And he tells a story that he literally reached down and just broke a piece off and continued his, his drawing. God has unlimited power. I'm reminded of where John said, I must, uh, Christ must increase, he must become more and more. I must decrease, I must become less and less. May we seek the face of God and revere His holy name, knowing that all destructive fears will fade away. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, we ask for forgiveness this morning if we have not been earnestly seeking Your face. God, if we have been lazy or presumptuous, in our pursuit of you. Lord, your your word says for us to ask, and it will be given. Seek and we will find, knock, and the door will be open. Lord, forgive us because it's it's very, very tempting, especially maybe in a in a culture that is so materialistic, where we do have so much, it, 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 perhaps it's more tempting then to look to those things, to find our, our identity, our joy, our medication, everything we need in, in those things, in our, in our stuff. Lord, we ask that You would just become so grand in our lives, God, that you would just reign supreme in our hearts, God, that that everything else would would be put in proper order. Lord, we love you and we thank you that you're a God who, who is so patient with us. Lord, you told the story of this prodigal son who was lost. And the father did not go searching for him. The father did not go seek him out. He he, he was not going to drag him back to his household, but he waited and he hoped. And God, we know that you will not grab us by the hair, twist our arms, force us into relationship with yourself, because that's not what love is. But you're patient and you're welcoming and your 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 long suffering and your abounding in love and so lord we pray that your spirit would would nudge our hearts back toward you back toward a more vigorous pursuit of you and that in that in that reverence lord all of our other fears and worries and anxieties would just be absolutely engulfed by your grace and your love in jesus name we pray amen